0: What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Informed Secular Minds podcast. This is Corey. With me for the evening is Scott. Um, we've got a jam packed show. There he is. We're, we've got a, a jam packed show for you this evening. I'm not going to spend too much time getting the ball rolling. So let me just say we want to thank Young Athlon 399 for hosting us on Periscope tonight. Um, and we're going to give you our phone number just in case you'd like to talk to us on the air. That is 646 564. Nine five five one. Um, make sure that you're following Scott at El dudorino E-L-D-U-D-E I-R-E-N-O on Twitter and Periscope. Seriously, guys, it's worth it. You can also follow me at Dopinephrine, D-O-P-I-N-E, P-H-R-I-N-E, and follow the show at ISM podcast underscore. We also want to invite everybody to stick around till the end of the broadcast for some major news about the show moving forward. Um, Scott, how are you doing today?
1: I'm um, doing really well. Super excited for tonight's episode.
0: This is, this is what it all comes down to. We have, been, we have been just cramming for Scientology Part 2. We really want to give you guys a fantastic broadcast, and I think you're going to enjoy it. But before we return to the world of Xenu and L. Ron Hubbard, I'm going to talk as briefly as possible about Steve Bannon. He is the co-founder of Breitbart News and is now President Trump's chief strategist in the White House. I'm going to start with some background information collected from various sources by Cosmopolitan. Breitbart News is a divisive right-wing opinion and news outlet known for headlines like Bill Kristol, Republican spoiler, Renegade Jew, Tranny's 49 times higher HIV rate, and birth control makes women unattractive and crazy. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, the site promotes racist, anti-Muslim, and anti-immigrant ideas, and it has been accused of white nationalism, a movement that opposes multiculturalism and believes in the supremacy of the white race. Bannon describes his ideology to Mother Jones as nationalist, but not necessarily white nationalist. Former KKK leader David Duke called Bannon's selectionist chief strategist in the Trump administration excellent, and Peter Brimlau who runs the white nationalist site VDARE, called it amazing, while the Anti-Defamation League condemned the appointment. Bannon told Mother Jones that Breitbart is the platform for the alt-right. Uh, the alt-right is, is widely seen as having views that are anti-Semitic and white supremacist. Um, I, at this point, everybody should know what the alt-right is. Uh, read up about that if you if you don't. During a 2011 Radio interview, Bannon said women like Ann Coulter, Michelle Bachman, and Sarah Palin threaten the progressive narrative. Quote, that's why there are some unintended consequences of the women's liberation movement. That, in fact, the women that would lead this country would be pro-family. They would have husbands. They would love their children. They wouldn't be a bunch of dykes that came from the Seven Sisters school up in New England. That drives the left insane, and that's why they hate these women. Bannon is a longtime supporter of the Tea Party and said in 2010, what we need to do is bitch slap the Republican Party. In 1996, Bannon was charged with misdemeanor domestic violence, battery, and dissuading a witness. The case was brought by his then-wife, who claimed Steve Bannon pulled at her neck and wrist, then smashed her phone when she tried to call the police. His ex-wife did not appear in court, and Bannon pleaded not guilty, so the case was dismissed. By the way, in court documents, the same woman talked about Bannon's distaste for Jews, stating he said that he doesn't like the way they raise their kids to be whiny brats and that he didn't want the girls going to school with Jews. On January 26, 2017, just a few days ago, Steve Bannon said to the New York Times, the media should be embarrassed and humiliated and keep its mouth shut and just listen for a while. The media here is the opposition party. They don't understand this country. They still do not understand why Donald Trump is the president of the United States. The media has zero integrity, zero intelligence, and no hard work. I'm going to read now from an article posted in the New York Times on January 29, 2017 by Glenn Thrush and Maggie Haberman. It started with the doom-hued inauguration homily to American carnage in United States cities, co-written by Mr. Bannon followed a few days later by his shut-up message to the news media. This week culminated with a blizzard of executive orders mostly hatched by Mr. Bannon's team and the White House policy advisor, Stephen Miller, aimed at disorienting the enemy, fulfilling campaign promises, and distracting attention from Mr. Trump's less-than-flawless debut. But the defining moment for Mr. Bannon came Saturday night in the form of an executive order giving the right-wing agitator a full seat on the principles Committee of the National Security Council while downgrading the roles of the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Director of National Intelligence, who will now attend only when the Council is considering issues in their direct areas of responsibilities. It is a startling elevation of a political advisor to a status alongside the Secretaries of State and Defense and over the President's top military and intelligence advisors. The article goes on to gauge reactions to this extraordinary decision from formal officials, quote, The last place you want to put somebody who worries about politics is in a room where they're talking about national security, said Leon E. Panetta, a former White House chief of staff, defense secretary, and CIA director in two Democratic administrations. Quote, I've never seen that happen, and it shouldn't happen. It's not like he has broad experience in foreign policy and national security issues. He doesn't. His primary role is to control or guide the president's conscience based on his campaign promises. That's not what the National Security Council is supposed to be about. That opinion was shared by President George W. Bush's last chief of staff, Josh Bolton, who barred Karl Rove, Mr. Bush's political advisor, from NSC meetings. A president's decisions made with those advisors, he told a conference audience in September, involve life and death for the people in uniform and should not be tainted by any political decisions. Already, there have been reports that Bannon has actively upturned the standard procedures of the NSC, doing away with several practices designed to keep key people with the requisite security clearances in the loop and making records of recommendations and copies of decisions kept in secret. This appears to be an active attempt at nipping any potential paper trails in the colloquial bud. He is running a cabal, almost like a shadow NSC, an intelligence official who asked to remain anonymous told Foreign Policy magazine in relation to Bannon. Most of you informed listeners out there have already heard all of this, so thanks for humoring my recap. The revelation that is a little less commonly known is one that I only stumbled on recently. In 2014, Steve Bannon gave unusually in-depth remarks by Skype to a conference held inside the Vatican in the summer of 2014. His full remarks were recorded by a journalist from BuzzFeed who was present, and you can find the entire recording on SoundCloud. It has been reposted by the Informed Secular Minds account. Here is a fairly significant segment from that call from the lips of Steve Bannon. I want to talk about wealth creation and what wealth creation really can achieve and maybe take it in a slightly different direction, because I believe the world and particularly the Judeo-Christian West is in crisis. And it's really the organizing principle of how we built Breitbart News to really be a platform to bring news and information to people throughout the world. Principally in the West, Expanding internationally to let people understand the depths of this crisis, and it is a crisis both of capitalism, but really of the underpinnings of the Judeo-Christian West and our beliefs. It's ironic, I think, that we're talking today at exactly tomorrow, 100 years ago, at the exact moment we're talking, the assassination took place in Sarajevo of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, that led to the end of the Victorian era and the beginning of the bloodiest century in mankind's history. Just to put it in perspective. With the assassination that took place 100 years ago tomorrow in Sarajevo, the world was at total peace. There was trade, there was globalization, there was technological transfer. The High Church of England and the Catholic Church and the Christian faith were predominant throughout Europe of practicing Christians. Seven weeks later, I think there were five million men in uniform, and within 30 days, there were over a million casualties bannon continues that war triggered a century of barbaric unparalleled in mankind's history virtually 180 to 200 million people were killed in the 20th century and i believe that you know hundreds of years from now when they look back we're children of that we're children of that barbarity this will be looked at almost as a new dark age but the thing that got us out of it the organizing principle that met this was not just the heroism of our people whether it was french resistance fighters. Whether it was the Polish resistance fighters or it's the young men from Kansas City or the Midwest who stormed the beaches of Normandy, commandos in England that fought with the Royal Air Force that fought this great war, really the Judeo-Christian war versus atheists, right? The underlying principle is an enlightened form of capitalism, that capitalism really gave us the wherewithal. It kind of organized and built the materials needed to support, whether it's the Soviet Union, England, the United States, and eventually to take back continental Europe and to beat back a barbaric empire in the Far East. And we're at the very beginning stages of a very brutal and bloody conflict, of which if the people in this room, the people in the church, do not bind together and really form what I feel is an aspect of the church militant, to really be able to not just stand with our beliefs, but to fight for our beliefs against this new barbarity that's starting, that will completely eradicate everything that we've bequeathed over the last 2,000, 2,500 years. Now, what I mean by that specifically, I think that you're seeing three kinds of, over, of converging tendencies. One is a form of capitalism that has taken away from the underlying spiritual and moral foundations of Christianity and really Judeo-Christian belief. Look, I'm a big believer in a lot of libertarianism. I have many, many friends. That's a very big part of the conservative movement, whether it's the UKIP movement in England, it's many of the underpinnings of the populist movement in Europe and particularly in the United States. However... That form of capitalism is quite different when you really look at it to what I call the enlightened capitalism of the Judeo-Christian West. It is a capitalism that really looks to make people commodities and to objectify people and to use them almost as many of the precepts of Marx. And that is a form of capitalism, particularly to a younger generation, that they're really finding quite attractive. And if they don't see another alternative, it's going to be an alternative that they can gravitate to under this kind of rubric of personal freedom. The other tendency is an immense secularization of the West, and I know we've talked about secularization for a long time, but if you look at younger people, especially millennials under 30, the overwhelming drive of popular culture is to absolutely secularize this rising iteration. So I think the discussion of, should we put a cap on wealth creation and distribution? It's something that should be at the heart of every Christian that is a capitalist. What is the purpose of whatever I'm doing with this wealth? What is the purpose of what I'm doing with the ability that God has given us, that divine providence has given us, to actually be a creator of jobs and a creator of wealth? I think it really behooves all of us to really take a hard look and make sure that we are reinvesting that back into positive things, but also to make sure that we understand that we're at the very beginning stages of a global conflict, and if we do not bind together as partners with others in other countries, that this conflict is only going to metastasize. Steve Bannon, possibly the most influential person in the White House and therefore the world, a man who has freer access to the foreign policy decisions of the United States than the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, believes that the deadliest century in world history can be boiled down to a massive conflict between the Christian West and atheism. He sees parallels between the global climate of today and the global climate just before the First World War. He links religion to economics in a way that suggests money should be used to help the church militant to defeat the enemies of Judeo-Christian values who would destroy over 2,000 years of belief-based progress. This is dangerous. This is a white and Christian supremacist declaring the press as the opposition party, associates secularism with Marxism as a threat to Judeo-Christian capitalism, who casually dismisses personal freedom, who is one of the architects of the president's executive order so far and who thinks a major problem with the National Security Council is too much transparency between its members. I know that Trump is a big, juicy target, but the man behind the throne is Steve Bannon. When you hear that name, pay attention. Stay vigilant. This guy has a problem with women, Democrats, Republicans, atheists, secularists, immigrants, Jews, Muslims, non-whites, and capitalists who disagree with him. He looks at the world and sees World War III on the horizon, and he just slithered his way into the command center of the greatest military power the world has ever seen. Well, that wraps up my introductory bit there. Um, So now that everybody is suicidal… Let's talk about the crazy man who started a call based on the methodology of pseudoscience. Scott, thank you for your patience.
1: That's um, uh, uh, no problem. That was fascinating. I'm, I'm so glad that that guy uh, has a position in the White House.
0: Oh, it's fantastic. I, I, I'm, I'm just I'm, – I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled at the, uh, the direction the country is going. It, well,
1: if it, nothing else, it, it lends to material.
0: It's True enough. <laughs> true enough okay um all right so it it's a it's a difficult shift, but I really want to jump right into all of the Scientology that we have left over from last week because guys, there is so much oh yeah it's it's so out of control this is this is i mean obscene amounts of information there's, um,
1: there's too much information really
0: I have to agree you you I think you could go your whole life and not. And not know it all. Um, I, I don't think that, a, that if you were a, a Scientologist scholar, you would ever – your work would ever be complete. Um, I, I think we have two additional notes to pick up from last week. We were talking about um, the book uh, Excalibur. This is you know the, the, the one that sent its readers insane. Um, oh, yeah.
1: They, they threw themselves out of skyscrapers, killing themselves willy-nilly.
0: Yeah, this is you know the super super dangerous material. Um, we've got we've got uh, two notes on that that uh, that we wanted to touch on. Scott, do you have those? Yeah, uh, in
1: 1949, in a 1949 letter to Ackerman, Hubbard discussed his work, Dark Sword, Cause and Cure of Nervous Tension, properly the science of mind, really Excalibur. Hubbard promises that the work will give the reader the power to rape women without their knowing it communicate suicide messages to your enemies as they sleep, sell the Ario Seco Parkway to the mayor for cash, evolve the best way of protecting and destroying communism, and other handy household hints. In 1962, Hubbard wrote a letter addressed to President Kennedy, in which he claimed the Soviet agents had stolen a manuscript copy of Excalibur in 1950. In 1964, And laboratory facilities he needed in the USSR so that he could complete his work.
0: This is this is like early early on, guys. This is like decades before Scientology even starts, and already the insanity is cranked up past ten. Uh, I mean, this is a person who's who's writing letters to the president to warn him that the Soviet Union's have a book.
1: Yeah, that, they have a copy uh, of my book.
0: Which is like a weapon of mass destruction in Hubbard's mind.
1: <laughs> um, but I don't – I personally don't understand why he's uh, afraid. Uh, like he said, if you don't know what it is, if you don't understand it, you're going to throw yourself out the window. You're going to kill yourself. So you should be sending copies of it in the masses to the enemy and just letting them kill themselves.
0: It would be perfect. Just, just mass print Excalibur. And uh, and translated it to Russian, give it to the Soviet Union, <laughs> and everybody will just drop dead. Oh my God. Um. Okay. We, we last week we went through uh Elron Hubbard's early days, um, his his childhood and uh, his his early kind of freeform, strange education and career. Um, we want to pick up right where we left off and, uh, and, and start giving you the rest of the history of L. Ron Hubbard. And I want to warn you guys, this is really, really, really dense. Um, it's possible that we're going to we're gonna, we're gonna miss some things. So if you have any kind of interest in L. Ron Hubbard, there's a book called A Piece of Blue Sky, Scientology, Dianetics, and L. Ron Hubbard Exposed by John Attack. Um, he was a Scientology member He wrote this book I believe in 1990 um, It's available uh, on the internet I think you can buy a printed copy as well if you want You can go to the uh, a piece of Blue Sky website And uh, it appears as though he has the entire work Available to the public on there um, This is a little bit ahead of the curve this was, this was, you know, Scientology has always been under attack from From one direction or another um, but this is kind of a a, uh, a landmark work uh, that is that is uh, against um, against uh, uh, Scientology, and it kind of breaks down the difference between the myth put forward by uh, L. Ron Hubbard and the Church versus what actually happened. Uh, it's sourced very very well. Uh, and we used it for a, a great deal of the following information. We also got some off of Wikipedia. Please don't kill us. It's L. Ron Hubbard. We're not talking about, you know, the theory of evolution here, guys. So uh, uh, <laughs> bear with us. But but look at look at that book if you really want to delve into a, a, a really big expanded exploration of the life of L. Ron Hubbard. He is a fascinating uh, figure.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um... Hubbard joined the Explorers Club in February 1940 on the strength of his claimed explorations in the Caribbean and survey flights in the United States. He persuaded the club to let him carry its flag on an Alaskan radio experimental expedition to update the U.S. Coast Pilot Guide to the coastlines of Alaska and British Columbia and investigate new methods of radio positioning and binding. The expedition consisted of Hubbard and his wife. The children were left at South Colby aboard his catch, Magician. Scientologists' the expedition of the expedition described Hubbard's recharting of an especially treacherous inside passage and his anthological study of indigenous Aleut and Hades, uh, and tell of how along the way he not only roped a Kodiak bear, but braved <laughs> 70-mile-an-hour winds and commiserate seas off the Aleutian Islands. They were divided about how far Hubbard's expedition actually traveled, whether it was 700 miles or 2,000 miles.
0: Now, this journey was was plagued with problems, something that, that L. Ron Hubbard happily told the Seattle Star in November of 1940. Uh, he explained that they had had some engine trouble. Uh, they broke down only two days after setting off. Um, he reached uh, Ketchikan in August of 1940 uh, after many delays following repeated engine breakdowns. The Ketchikan Chronicle reports Um, making no mention of the expedition that Hubbard's purpose in coming to Alaska was twofold, one to win a bet and another to gather material for a novel of Alaskan salmon fishing, uh, which sounds riveting. Uh, Having underestimated the cost of the trip, he did not have enough money to repair the broken engine. He raised money by writing stories and contributing to the local radio station and eventually earned enough to fix the engine, making it back um, in December of 1940. This highlights something interesting what we talked about in the first episode was Hubbard's constant need to build his own legend and just lie. I mean, he can't seem to help himself any little seed of truth that he can build upon. He does it and he does it. I mean, to the max, he just, as extraordinary a tale as you can write, that's what he claims actually happened in his life. But here, we have a bit of a shift. The church of Scientology is now building the legend of LRH rather than just relying on him to do it. I mean, he publicly stated in the newspaper what actually happened. And yet yeah. the church changed the narrative to blend in exaggerations and falsehoods to make him seem more legendary.
1: Yeah, it was a uh, um, broken down engine and writing to get it repaired. Cause I have no money, but the church says, Oh, Great expedition, remapping everything, ro- roping bears, just.
0: <laughs> roping bears, as you do, as you do. That's one of the, of one of the top do. three tourist activities in Alaska. You got to rope some bears. Uh, at this point, and a lot of people know this about Hubbard, he had, um, well, something less than an illustrious naval career. Uh, he He applied to join the Navy after he got back from Alaska. He was... He was almost obsessed with getting a commission. He really, really, really wanted to be in the Navy. Um, He got his congressman, uh, a a man named Warren G. Magnuson, um, to write a letter directly to Franklin Roosevelt uh, that recommended Hubbard. Um, In the letter, uh, Magnuson calls Hubbard a gentleman of reputation who was a respected explorer and has marine master's papers for many types of vessels, uh, more than more types of vessels than any other man in the United States. Uh, he was described. Hubbard was described as a key figure in writing organizations, making him politically potent nationally. Uh, the congressman concluded, "Anything you can do for Mister Hubbard will be appreciated." This this was a this was a trend during during uh, 1941 uh, as Hubbard called various people and, and and tried to get his friends to help him get this get this commission that he was dreaming about. Um, His friend Robert McDonald Ford, uh, who became a state representative for Washington, um, sent a letter of recommendation describing Hubbard as one of the most brilliant men I have ever known. It called Hubbard a powerful influence in the Northwest and said that he was well-known in many parts of the world and has considerable influence in the Caribbean and Alaska. The letter declared that for courage and ability, I cannot too strongly recommend him. Now, what I love about this is that later on in life – uh, this man, Robert McDonald Ford, said that, that Hubbard wrote the letter himself. He, he was friends <laughs> with Ron Hubbard, but he said, uh, I don't know why Ron wanted a letter. I just gave him a letterhead and said, hell, you're a writer. You write it. Oh. I love that. I love that. <laughs> uh, it worked, though. He, uh, he did receive um, a naval commission as lieutenant junior grade in July of 1941.
1: Um, Yeah, according to the Los Angeles Times, Hubbard's official Navy service records indicate that his military performance was, at times, substandard, and he received only four campaign medals rather than 21. He was never recorded as being injured or wounded in combat, and so never received a Purple Heart. Most of his military service was spent ashore in the continental United States on administrative or training duties. He served for a short time in Australia, but was sent home after quarreling with his superiors. He briefly commanded two anti-submarine vessels in coastal waters off Massachusetts, Oregon, and California in 1942 and 1943, respectively. But then uh, after he reported that he had been attacked and crippled, that he had attacked and crippled or sunk two Japanese submarines off of Oregon in May 1943, his claim was rejected by the commander, commander of the Northwest Sea Frontier. Hubbard and Thomas Moulton, his second in command on the PC-815, later said the Navy wanted to avoid panic on the mainland. A month later, Hubbard unwittingly sailed into Mexican territorial waters and conducted gunnery practice off the Coronado Islands in the belief that they were uninhabited and belonging to the United States. The Mexican government complained, and Hubbard was relieved of command. A fitness report written after the incident rated Hubbard as unsuitable for independent duties and lacking in the essential qualities of judgment, leadership, and cooperation.
0: In the documentary Going Clear that came out, I think in 2015 on HBO, um, they said that, uh, that Hubbard dropped all of his depth charges on logs, thinking that they were Japanese subs. I mean, every time this guy turned around, uh he finally got his commission. you know it's not like he had to actually go through boot camp or anything he just he just went straight to being um a lieutenant
1: <laughs> a lieutenant
0: got himself a couple of boats and then proceeded to fuck up at every possible turn <laughs> um i mean really it's it's it would be cute if it if it didn't lead to something so ominous. It would be kind of oh like you know nobody actually died. you just you know you're out in the middle of the of the ocean. Kind of adjacent to the war, you know, blowing up logs and islands and thinking that you're that you're that you're on a mission from Uncle Sam. Um, but here's where it gets a little nefarious because the Church of Scientology presents him as a much decorated war hero who commanded a corvette and during hostilities was crippled and wounded. Scientology publications say he served as a commodore of Corvette squadrons in all Five theaters of World War II And was awarded 21 medals With palms for his service He was severely wounded and was taken Crippled and blind to a military Hospital where he worked His way back to fitness strength And full perception in less than two years Using only what he Knew and could determine about man And his relationship to the universe
1: They didn't even need medical attention He just Hung out at the hospital while he healed himself.
0: Just give me a cot, and I will think my vision back, and I will stop being a par- uh, I will stop being paralyzed. I can just use my earliest whispers of dianetics and just fix myself. Uh, this is, you know, just a, a fine example of of the church just intensely rewriting what is already a legendary self-propagated story of myth and turning it into official doctrine um, in order to to hype this guy up as, as something close to a prophet. Um, here we've got uh, some information on, on how he began to develop Dianetics.
1: Yeah. The church of Scientology says that Hubbard's key breakthrough at the development of Dianetics, the- in the development of Bionetics was made at Oak Knoll Naval Hospital in Oakland, California. According to the church in early 1945, while recovering from more injuries at Oak Knoll Naval Hospital, Mr. Hubbard conducts a series of tests and experiments dealing with the Indrican system. He discovers that contrary to longstanding beliefs, function monitors structure. With this revolutionary advance, he begins to apply his theories to the field of the mind and thereby to improve the conditions of others.
0: He was indeed hospitalized in 1945, um, but it was for an ulcer. This this wasn't he didn't get machine gunned in the back. He wasn't blind because a bomb went off in his face, as he once uh, claimed. He had an ulcer. Um, he went to the hospital, and he was discharged. Uh, on December 4th of 1945 and transferred to inactive duty in February of 1946, he resigned his commission with effect from October 30th, 1950. But once again, the search of Scientology is there to, uh, to just, just lie about history. They say that he quit because the U.S. Navy attempted to monopolize all his researches and force him to work on a project to make man more suggestible. And when he was unwilling, tried to blackmail him by ordering him back to active duty to perform this function. Having many friends, he was able to instantly resign from the Navy and escape this trap. Um, The Navy looked into this. I'm not sure exactly. I guess it's, it's worth just putting to bed. They actually went ahead and investigated and said in a statement in 1980, there is no evidence on record of any attempt to recall him to active duty.
1: Well, yeah. Uh, of course there isn't. He just just likes to make everything up about himself. The Church of Scientology and their military researcher, Army Colonel uh, L. Fletcher, (coughs) pointed out gaps and missing records in Hubbard's service file, and also claimed that because Hubbard was in naval intelligence during the war, his service records may have been altered, possibly explaining some discrepancies. Hubbard's military career Begins with lies about his accomplishments, is defined by incompetence and wild imagination, and ends with lies about the healing power of what would become Dianetics. Hubbard's rampant and lavish paranoia begins to display itself.
0: For those following at home, there, there, there are a couple of instances where what he claims he did, he almost actually did. The vast majority of it is somebody who seems incapable of telling the truth and only the truth and is obsessed with turning himself into something more than a Renaissance man. He desperately needs to be a legend in every possible sense. Now, this basically wraps up his military career. And this is, this is where um, Hubbard moves to Pasadena. Now, he's still... Uh, he's still technically in the Navy. He's just on un- inactive duty. But he right. stays in the Navy until uh, October of 1950. In 1945, he moved to Pasadena. Um, I don't know if anybody is familiar with John Jack Parsons. A lot of people just call him Jack Parsons. He was a leading rocket propulsion researcher at the California Institute of Technology. He led a double life as an avid occultist and thelemite. Uh, Thelemites are followers of the English ceremonial magician Alistair Crowley. This is this is what we mean when we say that it's so hard to nail any of this stuff down. This the last 2 weeks Scott and I have been have been researching Scientology and every 5 minutes you you bump into it like a bunny trail.
1: Yeah, you you, you we could do two episodes on Alistair Crowley and that movement. And now we have to just like kind of brush on it, sort of, you've heard of Aleister Crowley, but we, we can't spend any time there because it all goes back to Hubbard.
0: The, the amount of uh, – every time we were like, okay, uh, this will be a great segment for the show, we would end up spending four hours just tracing down leads in order to get all of the supportive information to talk about one little thing. And ultimately, I mean it's practically self-defeating. Just to, just to learn all of this would take you a lifetime. In any case, for those who are, uh, who are somewhat familiar with Aleister Crowley, look him up if you don't. He's a fascinating character. Um, he, was, uh, he was the leader of a magical order called Ordo Templi Orientis, or O-T-O. Um, and this guy, Jack Parsons, was the leader of a lodge of that order in Pasadena. Um, interestingly, he lent rooms in the house only to tenants who he specified should be atheists and those of a bohemian disposition. Um that sounds like a really cool place to hang out. Now, I'm not down with Ordo Templi Orientis. But uh atheists and bohemians, that'd be that'd be you know, I I could hang out with those guys weekend. for a couple of weeks. Yeah, it'd be fun. <laughs> it would sure be fun. Um Hubbard goes there and he befriends Parsons and pretty soon um becomes sexually active with Parsons' 21-year-old girlfriend, Sarah Northrup. Despite this, Parsons was very impressed with Hubbard and reported uh, uh, back to Crowley.
1: Yeah, um, Hubbard is a gentleman. He has red hair, green eyes, is honest and intelligent, and we have become great friends. He moved in with me about two months ago, and although Betty and I are still friendly, she has transferred her sexual affection to Ron. Although he has no formal training in magic, he he has an extraordinary amount of experience and understanding in the field. For some of his experiences, I deduce that he is in direct touch with some higher intelligence, possibly his guardian angel. He describes his angel as a beautiful winged woman with red hair whom he calls the empress and who has guided him through his life and saved him many times. He is the most Thelemic person I have ever met and is in complete accord with our own principles. This, this kind of remi- this makes me think, maybe Hubbard wrote this too. For this oh, guy. Yeah.
0: Just send this to, to Crowley. He'll like this.
1: Send this to Crowley. Uh, uh, this is what I am.
0: It's one of the things we might we might never know. I, I mean, it, it, who knows? At this point, he well could have. I mean, it, if 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 we had learned that that's exactly what happened, it certainly wouldn't have surprised me. Um, these two guys, they were they were getting on pretty well, even though you know Hubbard was um was was banging this guy's girlfriend. And by the way, we didn't even talk about it. Hubbard is married at this point. He married a woman I think her name right. was Polly. Um, it was his first wife, um, and he's he's married, but he kind of like abandoned her two years earlier, and just you know went gallivanting about the sea. Um, I think they even had a couple of kids together, but he and Parsons, Hubbard and Parsons, began to collaborate on a sex magic ritual called Babylon Working. Great name. Uh, this was intended to summon an incarnation of Babylon, the supreme Thelamite goddess. It was undertaken over several nights in February and March 1946 in order to summon an elemental who could participate in further sex magic. Uh, a guy named Richard Metzger, uh, who's done some some TV work, he described it uh, thusly. He said, Parsons used his magical wand to whip up a vortex of energy so the elemental would be summoned. Translated into pure English. Parsons jerked off in the name of spiritual advancement whilst Hubbard, referred to as the Scribe in the diary of the event, scanned the astral plane for signs and visions. (laughs) I love this. These guys are just completely batty. I wonder what kind of drugs they were on.
1: Yeah, uh, well, that's some pretty good shit. You're like, all right, you jack off. I'll look around what see what happens. (laughs) I wonder if
0: they drew straws for that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The Elemental arrived a few days later in the form of uh, Marjorie Cameron, who agreed to participate in Parsons' rights. Soon afterwards, Parsons, Hubbard, and Sarah agreed to set up a business partnership, Allied Enterprises, in which they invested nearly their entire life savings, the vast majority contributed by Parsons. The plan was for Hubbard and Sarah to buy yachts in Miami and sell them to the West Coast. Uh, for a profit. Instead, Hubbard wrote to the U.S. Navy requesting permission to leave the country to visit Central and South America and China for the purposes of collecting writing material. Aleister Crowley strongly criticized Parsons' actions, writing, suspect wrong, playing confidence trick. Jack Parsons, weak fool. Obvious victim, prowling swindlers. Parsons attempted to recover his money by obtaining an injunction to prevent Hubbard and Sarah leaving the country or disposing of the remnants of his assets. They attempted to sail away but were forced back to port by a storm. A week later, Allied Enterprises was dissolved. Parsons received only a $2,900 promissory note from Hubbard and returned home shattered. He had to sell his mansion to developers soon afterwards to recoup his loss.
0: Now, this presents a bit of a problem for Scientology because their religion is supposed to be pure, and they go to great lengths um, in some of their texts to talk about um, other religions as being um, not not engrams. What's what's the word that they use?
1: Um,
0: Impacts or something. There, there's a, there's, oh, there's two uh, kinds of right, former right, memories. Right,
1: implants. implants
0: implants implants, thank you they they talk about how like hubbard even says at one point yeah there was probably a christ uh he was probably a guy i probably believe what he said but um he was he had he was he was influenced by by um implants uh these these false memories designed to control mankind later on he he has a problem with other religions he rejects the traditional religions he's not into it and and scientology doesn't want to be associated with any of that stuff. In fact, their narrative cannot play um, with the the major religions on the planet. It can't play with with polytheism or monotheism. It doesn't it doesn't fit with with any other with any other narrative. So, when Hubbard is playing around with uh, this occult guy who believes in goddesses and sexual rituals and all this other this other stuff, um, Scientology has has a, has a bit of a problem and. And so they spin the narrative yet again. Their accounts do not mention Hubbard's involvement in occultism. This is so good. He is instead described as continuing to write to help support his research during this period into the development of a means to better the condition of man. The Church of Scientology has nonetheless acknowledged Hubbard's involvement with the OTO. Here's how they put it. Hubbard broke up black magic in America. Elron Hubbard was still an officer of the U.S. Navy because he was well-known as a writer and a philosopher and had friends among the physicists. He was sent in to handle the situation. He went to live at the house and investigated the black magic rites and the general situation and found them very bad. Hubbard's mission was successful far beyond anyone's expectations. The house was torn down. Hubbard rescued a girl they were using. The Black Magic Group was dispersed and destroyed and has never recovered. Yeah, the house was tore down because the guy had to sell it to a developer because you right. stole all his money.
1: He stole, he again, didn't. It's, a, it's that pattern of a little bit of the truth, but I'm just going to make myself out to be the hero. The Navy knew I'm the guy to send in, and I will handle the situation. This is straight out of
0: this is like King Arthur or something. He's a complete paladin. He rides into town, um, to stop these, these black magicians sees that it is very bad. I love that. And gets the house torn down while rescuing Uh, the girl they were using.
1: Sees that it is very bad. That's a, uh, that's one of the things that he kind of did in his other writings is he would write this long paragraph that was very poetic and, and, um, you know, articulate. And then the last sentence would be like, and uh, it was very bad. Right. <laughs> no. Uh, also, just, also, Jesus was there, you know, just, he just throws on this. Just drop something on the thought. end.
0: Why not? Just wedge it in. It's, it's amazing guys. If you ever get a chance to just sit down and you have like a lot of free time and nothing better to do. I mean, I don't know why you would, I'm not actually recommending this, but if you ever actually read any L Ron Hubbard, this is, this is like the way he writes. Remember how we were talking about how he would just feverishly pound away at his keyboard? He would get the typewriters and just write. So he was getting paid a penny a word. So he would just, just type, 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 type as fast as he possibly could. And he wasn't doing like second drafts. He wasn't writing the story ahead of time. He was literally just, just stream of consciousnessing it right into the typewriter on the spot. And so his hands are moving slightly faster than his brain. And things would occur to him. As he was finishing up a nice paragraph And so he would just shoehorn it right Onto the end he would just attach it And it, it, it makes for this jolting Bizarre reading experience where it's like you're almost With him and then he just says Some left turn random Thing on the end that makes no Sense we had a couple of examples of it um, uh, Last week on the show um, We were talking about this is this is the Little gray men that everybody talks about <laughs> Right? <laughs> just, yeah. so, oh, by the way the this is,
1: This explains all alien Encounters <laughs> By the way, at the end of the sentence, I figured that out too.
0: Yeah, yeah. He's, and, and why bother with editing, going back? and I wonder how different all of this doctrine would be if he had had a word processor instead of a physical piece of paper that you can't just like move your cursor up and, and like, he couldn't do any on-the-fly editing. He had to write it linearly. Right. All right. So, Hubbard rides in the towel, saves the damsel, destroys the house, uh, leaves town, in reality, screws the guy over hardcore, st- takes right. his girlfriend, cons the entire event, uh, and makes the guy lose his house. They just ruined this guy's life. Um,
1: uh, th- this is just a side note, not important to stay on, but uh, what is the head of jet propulsions for the US- United States government doing trying to jack off and summon demons? I mean, <laughs> 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 what is going yeah. on?
0: Yeah, we. It, we it, this is the amazing part. When we're reading all of this story, when we're relaying the story of this occult incident, the weird guy is the guy who wasn't a secret occult masturbator. Right. The the, the of the two guys, the normal one is the guy leading a secret life with yeah. atheist Julian's That guy alone. Nuclear yeah,
1: he's slices. like the so good Jack, guy. Seven demons.
0: Leave him alone. He's the victim in the story. <laughs> Holy shit! All right, they bounce. He's escaped. Um and then uh, Hubbard marries this girl that he uh, you know, rescued. Well, by the uh, way, he's still married to his first wife.
1: Yeah, he's still married to her first wife, but I don't think it counts because – does it count when you're marrying an elemental that was summoned in a masturbation oh, good ceremony? Question. Good it question. It probably doesn't yeah. count. Yeah, she doesn't have papers or anything.
0: You don't need to elemental. write. I mean she doesn't have a social security number. No. She comes from the nether realm.
1: For sure. That's not a problem.
0: We watched, um, what was that movie called? The Prophet?
1: The Prophet. Uh, we didn't watch that. We would never break the laws of the land and watch exactly. it. Exactly. Okay, no. We wouldn't. We heard we wouldn't about do that. this movie, The Prophet.
0: We, we heard, we, heard we, we learned a lot about outside it. Of the country um, who watched it. This movie was made, it, it debuted at, the, I think, the Cannes Festival in like 2001 or something like that. And it's about just cults in general. They insist it's not about uh, L. Ron Hubbard. Um, instead, it's L. Conrad Powers, and his story is exactly the same as L. Ron Hubbard's, but it's totally, definitely not him. The yeah, Church that, of Scientology, it, there's no, I mean, I don't even know where you would get this from. Um, the the entire, I mean, it goes through Hubbard's, Hubbard's entire life, starting around the the – the what the story we just told with with Parsons, who of course right. also has a different name, um, the the film, they tried to uh, you know as you do when you have a movie, they tried to distribute it in the United States, and this the Church of Scientology went to a federal court and got an injunction in order to keep any like uh, distribution company from picking up this motion picture. Um, that that effectively turned it into a banned movie the u s government doesn 't say you 're not allowed to watch this you 're just not allowed to actually um, uh, like put it on a disk and sell it you can 't have any publishing rights inside of the United States because of an injunction. The Church of Scientology said we 're just we have this ability we 're going to go to the courts and make it so that nobody 's allowed to watch this film. If you ever come across it and get a chance to watch it it 's um it's it's not you know Academy Award winning, it's basically a dramatization of of the entire story from this point forward, um, and it's 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 pretty it's pretty goddamn fascinating.
1: Yeah, it was a lot more interesting than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, so he marries marries a girl while he's still married, and then over the next few years, he was chronically broke fleshing out ideas in Dianetics, borrowing from Excalibur, psychology, pseudoscience, and his own imagination. He tried to promote Dianetics as psychology, sending it to various professional organizations and uh, offered um, offering them to access his research. And they uh, they all unanimously rejected it. Hubbard went to his editor and then who uh, had a long interest in psychologies and psychic powers and got him to help develop and market Dianetics to the general public. Hubbard refined his techniques of Dianetics, testing them on science fiction fans recruited by his editor, John Campbell. The basic principle of Dianetics was that the brain recovered every experience or recorded every experience and event in a person's life, even when unconscious. Bad or painful experiences were stored as what we call Ingrams in a reactive mind. Now, remember uh, last week we talked about Hubbard said there's two parts of the mind, the reactive mind and the analytical mind the analytical mind was, uh, what did he say it was? A perfect computer. Perfect
0: computer. Flawless.
1: Right. So, uh, so to store an in Ingrams and a reactive mind that could be triggered later in life, causing emotional and physical problems by carrying out a process he called auditing, a person could be regressed through these Ingrams to re-experience past experiences. This enabled Ingrams to be cleared. The subject, who would now be in a state of clear, would have a perfectly functioning mind with an improved IQ and a photographic memory. The clear would be cured uh, of physical ailments ranging from poor eyesight to the common cold, which Hubbard asserted were purely psychosomatic. Uh, poor eyesight? Didn't he cure himself from blindness?
0: Pure blindness. Blindness, yeah. yeah. Uh, a bomb went off right in his face. Right uh, Shrindles didn't get him, but uh, it, it, did, it did You know, burn up his eyes, I guess. Um, it was pretty bright. Yeah, bombs are bright. Uh you know, we can give them that much. They that would that would definitely hurt your eyes if a bomb went off in your face. Um Yeah, not only can you cure the common I mean, anything from, from common colds which are totally psychosomatic. Psychosomatic. Um, it's it's just you know, it's just a state of mind. All that mucus is just your imagination.
1: I guess you hadn't read any Weiss about germs yet, but that's fine.
0: Yeah, who cares about who cares about viruses? I mean
1: it's, it's all', all it's like automatic all, yeah
0: and 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 I suppose that if you were to test somebody's blood and and find the common cold, it would um the the virus for the common cold it would it would just that also would perhaps be a mental. Well they
1: probably formed it through the power of like placebo effect, like they believe they have the common cold, so their body just starts manifesting what looks like the common cold virus. that must be what it is.
0: What you start to see here is that just like his life story, he's borrowing little seeds, little ideas, little notions that might be sort of almost a little bit true. And then he wraps that in all kinds of just craziness, right? He does the same thing as he begins to develop Dianetics, and and Scott, the other night you were you were we were on a call and you were telling me you, you, something occurred to you about how that is kind of what other religions do.
1: Other religions and um, you know even fictional novels, the, a good fictional novel will have a lot of truths that we know are true. And then once you believe that, once you know those are true, then it's easier to believe the fictional narrative. But the other religions, it's no different than the other religions in the fact that like. Christianity taking from pagan traditions or the Sumerian Codex. Scientology has done it with turn of the century, turn of the 20th century psychology. Just rewrap it and re-gift it to the masses.
0: You know, uh, ancient cuneiform leading to the stories of of Noah's Ark and and like early versions of God's commandments being just kind of borrowed and fixated and turned and reappropriated to different cultures and then called the absolute word of God. That's precisely the notion here the tactic is take a little bit of what philosophy and psychology says and then just run wild with it and say that because you're standing on a base that's real, it doesn't matter what shape of building you put on top of it. It's, it's solid.
1: Yeah. uh, Well, we were just talking about the uh, the Ingrams that were of the uh, traumatic events that you happen, that that happened to you. And so then you can, you can be clear of those. Uh Um, That's just borrowing from, from psychology, in, in, the mid, um, to, uh, in the mid to late 1800s, there was a French mathematician, uh, Urban LeVeyer. He set out to work on the problem of the planet Mercury's orbit, not lining up with predictions. His hypothesis postulated that Mercury's orbit was being affected by an unseen planet between Mercury and the sun. And he called the planet Vulcan, after the Roman god of beneficial and hindering fire, including fire of volcanoes. Making it the perfect name for a planet so close to the sun. But astronomers around the world attempted to observe the planet between Mercury and the sun, and no trace it was ever found. It only lives on today in sci fi, Vulcan, where Spock is from. Uh, but it was a placeholder for them. You know, a, a, a scientific hypothesis. Why is Mercury's orbit not lining up the way we predicted it? it should? And um, the guy, uh, the, the mathematician, French mathematician, Urban Leveyer, he. He had discovered um, the existence of Neptune through the same process. Something is affecting something gravitational out there. There must be a body out there that we don't know about. And then he uh, postulates that Neptune exists, and he was right. So he does it again. He's not right. There is no planet there. To, there's another explanation for it. But there was this placeholder. Um, I only mention this because one of the main goals in Scientology is to go clear, like we were just talking about. And you got to you got to rid yourself of these Ingrams to do that. They're holding you back. Ingrams, like Vulcan, are a hypothesized element of the brain that functions in the storing of memories. Uh, Richard Seaman was a German zoologist and evolutionary biologist, and he was a memory researcher who studied social evolution and believed in the idea of the inheritance of, a, of acquired characteristics. Now, uh, that's another rabbit hole to go down, but it's, it's all in psychology. And he coined the word Ingrams saying they were memory traces or after effects of external stimulation. Even, he even sought to find them with a machine, an uh, early version <laughs> of the phonograph, and believed they'd be able to be passed down to offspring. So there's a, like the first like e-meter is this guy hooking himself up to a record player trying to find his Ingrams. Uh, I, I,
0: love, I wonder if the idea there was that you, would, you could record a memory and then play it back.
1: Oh, yeah. That would be interesting. And you could hear, like audibly hear the moment that the Ingram is acting on you.
0: If it's a perfect, if it's like the analytical mind idea where it's a perfect replication, then you should be able to just like, you know, I don't know, stick your head next to a phonograph and then uh, play the record back and hear like horses and soldiers in Napoleon's army because you were there in a past life.
1: Right, right. Um yeah, and uh, this um, – uh, R. Hamilton uh, said uh, that Vulcan was a rejected hypothesis, and that happens all the time in science. Right. You, you come up with a hypothesis, a working hypothesis. Is this the reason? I think this might be the reason. No, it's not. And so um, – but but Hubbard takes this rejected part of science and then adopts it to his own thing. Mm. Uh But these ingrams kind of remind me of like PTSD and the the person would hold on to the memories created by the external stimuli and stay with that person throughout their lives. And uh, Simon thought that they would be passed on to your children, to your offspring. So that the the traumatic event could be passed on to your offspring is is a little pseudoscience outside of the realm. But uh, it kind of reminded me uh, as I was reading it about an old Eastern philosophy it says like uh, every person, I think it might be males, but I don't know. But every person has an inner demon that they have to, they have to fight. They have to uh, overcome that. And if they don't overcome, if a father can't overcome his inner demon, it would be passed on to his firstborn son. Mm. So it kind of flows into that. Um, but throughout the years after uh, semen thought that they might exist, ingrams have been searched for but not found in all areas of the brain. Lab experiments involving rats found that rats who have memorized a maze would forget how to navigate the maze as more and more brain tissue was removed. (laughs) 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 Surprise, (laughs) surprise. (laughs) 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 You take out pieces of the brain, they forget how to walk. It's
0: crazy. It's so weird. The more of their brain tissue you surgically remove from their little tiny skulls, the worse they do at life. (laughs) Revolutionary.
1: But they they didn't find the Ingram. The elusive Ingram was never found, and uh, in the search for the mechanism that records memory, the Ingram was postulated, eventually dismissed, and just like the guesses of Vulcan to explain perceived gravitational phenomena, it's not there. But mm-hmm. when L.R.H. stumbled across it, he quickly adopted it in the dianetics, and at first he was like uh, using it as it was defined, uh, you know, it, using it in the strict terms that you know this, this stimuli memory. But then he changed the definition from just holding a memory to holding the memory of traumatic accidents. And through the process of auditing, one can, as I mentioned above, clear themselves of those memories and therefore move on from them. It is important to note that an Ingram in Dianetics is the memory of a traumatic accident. Hmm. If the trauma is caused by another person or Satan on purpose, then it is called an implant. And we talked about that, what you were asking me earlier. Right. Uh, Implants are put there to suppress an individual. And um, here's another aspect of him railing against Christianity. He says the Christian idea of heaven and the afterlife is an implant in an attempt to suppress all of humanity.
0: All of humanity. The, 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 I, I like this. I, I, he's got different terminology. An engram is if you get in a car wreck and you remember it, that's an engram. If somebody runs you off the road, or if someone actually reprograms, like, um, there's an entire notion, I think we, we might actually get to it uh, a little bit later on in the show. There's this notion of, of engrams being like intentionally confused, um, where some nefarious force out there, I, I think they're associated with the Fifth Fleet or with Xenu personally, they, you, can, you can actually implant. Uh, uh, Like false memories Negative ideas um, Into into a Thetan um, And then send them on their way This is what he thought Jesus Christ was He thought that Jesus Christ thought that he was the Son of God And that some other nefarious force Stuck the idea of him being the Son of God In his head So that He would go out and tell everybody You know about the New Testament And that would pull everybody away From the actual mission of clearing the planet
1: Right. And again, this is another one of those rabbit trails that we were talking about uh, before when um, there is that uh, the guy who coined the word Ingrams um, seaman where he was a follower of a um, what was that? I'm just looking for that because it's uh, interesting. The um, I'm sorry, I got just so much information here. I got
0: like 12 pages out too. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's insanity right now. I've got like well, 15 tabs. whatever part of the,
1: uh, I'll, I'll I'll bring it up when I when I find it. But it's it's a part of um, psychoanalyzing that was developed early on by um, Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud. Mm. So this is a, a, another, you know, I mean, I could have spent two days researching that. It's just another aspect of I'm going to stand on, on uh, what has been established as a sound base of, of early psychology, and then I'm going to twist it to my own ends.
0: Right, right. I, I mean, at this point, Hubbard is blending ideas from the occult science fiction his own extraordinary imagination psychic notion psychiatry and pseudoscience he's combining it all into a somewhat legible format and promoting it in person at lectures and book signings as it takes off dianetics was a hit with the public and was soon being translated into other languages uh, for international sales he, he wrote the book and thought you know this is this is going to be good and it it kind of took off um, it was, however, poorly received by the press and the scientific community. It was panned by doctors, researchers, and even other science fiction writers. Dianetics Research Centers, because of this, this wave of interest, uh, started springing up around the United States, uh, funded by the public's willingness to pay large sums of money for auditing sessions. Hubbard traveled the country, training auditors and promoting the research. Uh, the, the, the Everybody knows that Scientology especially as, as in the 21st century, when we look at Scientology in in today's terms, we usually associate it with celebrities. The first famous people involved in the pre-church church, church, which were these Dianetic research centers, um, were fellow authors, including Aldous Huxley. Um, He was getting poets and authors and uh, other science fiction writers uh, all to, all to look at this. Not everybody was fooled. Um, In fact, Isaac Asimov who knew Hubbard rather well, um, thought that he was a scam artist um, kind of attacked him in a letter to some other science fiction writer at the time and, and warned them about what Hubbard Hubbard had done to Parsons and wrote that um, that dianetics was, uh, was bizarre and stupid. Basically Um, he was, he was, he was not impressed. Now the middle of the 21st, the middle of the 20th century, rather just after world war II, in the United States was a time of fads and awakenings and um, it, it leads through the next two decades towards the, the, the baby boomers and, and even people a little bit older than that trying to figure out something new. It was, it was post-industrial age. It was kind of another uh, period of awakening. The beatniks come along. You have the hippie movement, the anti-war movement. There's all of this Kind of, sort of, cultural spirituality, the free love ideas—you um, end up having a a a, um, a, a swamp, if you will, a, 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 a condition in which ideas like what Tim Leary was doing with acid uh, is, right. is possible of festering. That kind of thing can grow in this environment. The conditions are such that you can you can start these little weird fringe ideas and people are looking for answers. People are, are curious about the world. Um, people are, are, something changed in American culture during those, those decades. And it was in that same time period when Dianetics became uh, like this craze, but as quickly as it had begun, the Dianetics craze started to die. People were noticing that the process wasn't working um, Hubbard was going around and withdrawing huge sums of money from the coffers for personal use. He was just withdrawing uh, like massive amounts of cash and just taking it with him without signing anything or saying what it was for. Um, there was no actual science going on. That was turning people off. These, these original people were serious thinkers. They were trying to – maybe this is something. And they were trying to uh, – they were investing in Dianetics. But when they saw that there was no science going on, if there was no empiricism to stand on, people started to leave. People started to lose interest. They started to realize that it was a shell. There was no content to it. Um, Right at this time, Hubbard and his wife Sarah, the the woman who he stole from Parsons, um, they both started cheating on each other. And Hubbard informed the FBI – That the man his wife was sleeping with was a communist infiltrator who was addicted to drugs and was responsible for the decay of Dianetics. Of course, the FBI dismissed such claims. I think there's actually a note somewhere where the guy he's on the phone with, the FBI agent, just writes, this guy is a mental case right in the notes. Like it, it 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 was bizarre, but the FBI started to keep a file on him and ended up with, because of all of the bizarre stuff that the church ended up doing in the preceding decades, they had a massive file on L. Ron Hubbard. <clears throat> um,
1: um well, i was just i'm sorry i just remembered that that thing that is uh, the inheritance of acquired characteristics and um you know when i talked about uh, freud and young like you're saying these are these were thoughtful people who were, who were putting out ideas and saying is this it and we know that all right you, they didn't exactly understand memory how, you know, the, that thing about the mouse, when they took out parts of the brain, it just didn't do the maze very well. But the interesting part of that study was that it didn't matter what, as, what parts of tissue of the brain they took out. It still deteriorated. So it mm. didn't, didn't matter if it was cortex or cerebral or wherever. Wherever they took something out, the ability to master the maze deteriorated. So they couldn't pin down exactly where memory was stored or what it is. And this Ingram was like a placeholder in scientific awareness of maybe this mm. is what holds memory. But uh, this idea of acquired stuff from you know your your ancestors taking on on their ingrams of whatever's holding them back you know and, and then passing on to you and so now you're you're at a disadvantage right away right out of the gate with this kind of leads to Hubbard's you know later ideas of well, I mean first off it gets some credibility because it's it's some something that breaking, uh, you know, people are, that are, um, you know, forerunners in this field are are are, are having these thoughts, and he's, he's building on those, claiming their uh, credibility for himself, and then saying, well, they were right, they were close, but I'm the one who actually figured out what it really is, sure. and it's not PTSD, and it's not this, it is Ingram's, but there's two different kinds of Ingram's, one's an implant, one's this, and here's how you beat them.
0: Right. Yeah. It it reminds me of, um, of like early DNA research. We, we, it's kind of everywhere and nowhere. It doesn't seem that memories are, are, uh, at least in these early rat experiments, it doesn't seem that the memories, it's not like you can just remove the memory center of the brain and leave everything else intact. Uh, they do bad no matter what part of the brain you remove. Um, I would get confused by that too. If I didn't know any better, I would be very interested. Where the hell are the memories stored? Okay, so Hubbard is, you know, since Dianetics isn't doing well and since he's probably pissed off that his wife is cheating on him. Um the only possible explanation is that the guy she's cheating on him with is a communist infiltrator. Uh 3 weeks after that, Hubbard and two foundation staff This is this is Hubbard kind of going ahead and getting people that are in Dianetics. This is this is before it's officially a church. This is uh, when yeah, it's just Scientology a is
1: fifty-two, right? So this is fifty-one.
0: Yeah. So this not is a church. Before, there's no religion doctrine yet. There's no. It's just. It's still just a process that's supposed to be scientific. Yet he still is able to get two foundation staff members to help him seize Sarah and his year-old daughter Alexis, and he forcibly took them to San Bernardino, California, where he attempted unsuccessfully to find a doctor to examine Sarah and declare her insane. He was hoping to get her locked up. Um, right, well,
1: if I can't have you, nobody can.
0: Right. Uh, he finally let Sarah go, but he took his daughter to Havana, um, like, kind of kidnapped her
1: a little bit. Um, just a little bit.
0: Just a little, a little, it's like a tiny almost,
1: little hold against your will kind of thing.
0: It's a smidgen of kidnapping. It, it, it's, it's got the whiff of kidnapping. It's more like
1: wrongful imprisonment. but
0: <laughs> Call it what you will. Um, Sarah filed for divorce in April of 1951. Now, she accused L. Ron Hubbard of marrying her. Uh, bigamously, which he did He married her while he was still married to, to I think her name is Polly I don't have it written down um, She claimed that Hubbard subjected her to sleep deprivation Beating, strangulation, kidnapping And extortions, uh, extortions To commit suicide um, She finally secured The return of her daughter in June By agreeing to a settlement with her husband In which she signed a statement Written by him that said, in part, the things I have said about Elron Ron Hubbard in courts and the public prints have been grossly exaggerated or entirely false. I have not at any time believed otherwise than that Elron Ron Hubbard is a fine and brilliant man.
1: I like how he writes things for other people to say about him.
0: It's, it's, it's habitual at this point.
1: Right. Uh, there are a few more false starts. Another marriage. This time when he was 18, or uh, he married an 18-year-old staffer. Uh, Then he launched uh, Hubbard College for six weeks before shutting it down. Then he finally starts a Hubbard Association of Scientologists International to promote his new science of certainty, Scientology. Now, remember in episode one when we quoted L.L. Hubbard and uh, he's saying that he wanted to smash his name into history? Yeah. Yeah, he then, he spends much of his life trying to figure out various ways to hit big money, almost exclusively in some kind of scam. Here are a few more quotes. They all are almost identical, but going to present them nonetheless because it seems to indicate he had something very specific in his mind. All right, quote number one. Living is a pretty grim joke, but a joke just the same. The entire function of man is to survive. The outermost limit of endeavor is to create work. Anything less is too close to simple survival until death happens along. So I am engaged in striving to maintain equilibrium sufficient to at least realize survival in a way to astound the gods. I turn the thing up, so it's up to me to survive in a big way.
0: He said, God was feeling sardonic the day he created the universe. So it's rather up to at least one man every few centuries to pop up and come just as close to making him swallow his laughter as possible.
1: Uh, He also said, you don't get rich writing science fiction. If you want to get rich, you start a religion.
0: You know, we're all wasting our time writing this hack science fiction. You want to make real money? You got to start a religion.
1: Writing for a penny a word is ridiculous. If a man really wants to make a million dollars the best way would be to start his own religion.
0: The only way you can control people is to lie to them. You can write that down in your book in great big letters. The only way you can control anybody is to lie to them.
1: <laughs> and my favorite, Scientology is the only specific cure for radiation burns.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is my favorite thing ever. That is my favorite <laughs> sentence. <laughs> If you got radiation burns. There's only one cure, and it's Scientology.
1: Well, only one specific cure.
0: <laughs> that is just. just I, I'm, I want that as a tattoo. That is such a good sentence. That is. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god.
1: But this is like the, this is his turning point. This is uh, out of the science, out of the psychology, and where he's like. It's a religion. That's how, you know, and the, the smash my way into the history books is one line. That, that's pretty good. But the, um, so I'm engaged in striving to maintain equilibrium sufficient to at least realize survival in a way to astound the gods. Hmm. Like, I'm going to do this living thing better than anybody you guys have ever created before. And you're going to take note of me. The gods are going to notice me. Not yes. just the whole
0: world. Yeah. I, I I'm actually I'm I'm a little bit gonna fuck with God at this point. Right. He's as he as he as he transitioned from pseudoscience research to religion, Hubbard expanded upon the basics of Dianetics to construct a spiritually oriented doctrine based on the concept that the true self of a person was a Thetan. This is an immortal, omniscient, and potentially omnipotent entity. Hubbard taught that the Thetans, having created the material universe, remember we talked about Mest last time on the last show, they had right. forgotten their godlike powers and become trapped in physical bodies. Remember, he also said that Thetans can't get trapped, but here they are, trapped to physical bodies. Scientology aimed to rehabilitate each person's Thetan to restore its original capacities and become once again an operating thetan. This is what's referred to as OT later on. Hubbard insisted humanity was imperiled by the forces of aberration, which were the result of engrams carried by the immoral thetans for billions of years. He, he, he decides that every time, every time he starts up some new scam, it gets him so far, and then like a pendulum, it begins to swing back again. And I think it occurred to him Especially after he had been talking so much about how all the real money is in religion, that what he should do is he should repackage Dianetics. He had seen the model and had some experience with the research facility uh, operating di- the way that that, that that had worked. And so he thought, aha, what I need to do is, is combine my grand ideas here and just go 100% with it. Just. I don't even care. I'm not even that worried about the law at this point. I'm going to go full on religion with it.
1: Yeah, and this is interesting because th- throughout his entire life, he's been um, taking a little bit of the truth and, and adding onto it all his his um, pathological aspects to the to the stories. But then, you know, he takes from other people uh, uh, their ideas and, and passes them off as their own. Takes early psychology, passes off on his own. And now he's doing it to his own work. Mm-hmm. Right. Now he takes his previous science fiction stuff his diametics, and is going to repurpose it and redefine it and create a religion out of it.
0: And go as extreme as he possibly can. He said uh, he wrote a book called A History of Man. He called it a cold-blooded and factual account of your last 60 trillion years. 60 trillion <laughs> He wrote a book called Scientology 8-8008. With this book, the ability to make one's body old or young at will, the ability to heal the ill without physical contact, the ability to cure the insane and the incapacitated is set forth for the physician, the layman, the mathematician, and the physicist. He's literally talking about miracles here. He's literally saying yeah, that uh, if you just subscribe to his shit, you can do miraculous things at will.
1: What, uh, as I was reading this, that, that book, Scientology 8 8- Eighty zero eight. that's considered one of the most important books in Scientology. I,
0: I mean there are people that believe this, that by reading a book and understanding its contents, they can just close their eyes, think, and make themselves physically older or younger. One wonders why you don't see this happening. Why, why, well, and, why would you hear this claim and not think, well, then why can't somebody demonstrate that before I pay my 50 bucks to get the book?
1: Right. Um, the interesting thing about this is that uh, we talked about this the first show, too, is I think that Hubbard kind of believes some of those I, I just said it pathological. I think he believes this. I mean, we know that he's a comment. We know that he's lying. We know that he makes up stories. But uh, earlier we, we read that part where he said um, this will allow you the ability to rape women without them knowing it to, uh, to be able to put suicidal thoughts into your enemy's head and have them kill themselves. Yeah. So sleeping, right? right. Uh, and, and then you just read that he tried to do that with Sarah. He tried to oh, get yeah. her to kill herself by talking You're to her. You're right. Him. I don't. He, he, he believes that he can do these things.
0: You're right. I didn't even, I, I've read that like six times in the last 24 hours. You're right. That's what he tried to do. He said that he could do it and he tried to do it.
1: It has to be a pathological thing where once he, he thinks it, it becomes fact in his head.
0: He, re- he recognized that um, Hubbard is, is always sort of lost in this reality slash fantasy world where he can't – he just kind of blends the two together. But he's got this long time obsession with money as well. He really, really, really wants to be like super rich. And as he had been stating before, he knew that if he could make it a religion, not only would he be able to get a lot of money from his uh, congregation, but that he would be able to keep the money he was getting. He didn't like taxmen um in fact if you remember the the uh, the narrative of Xenu uh demonized the tax man you know 75 million years right, ago right right
1: yeah Xenu was Zenu was the tax man he he called everybody that he didn't like up criminals and artists
0: <laughs> <was> and artists
1: <laughs> for 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 tax audits and that was a lie stabbing in the lungs with an alcohol glycerol will freeze you up and drop volcanos yeah he does not like the tax man
0: right uh, there's a lot of people he doesn't like, but he especially does not like uh, taxmen, psychiatrists. He wrote uh, – after he, he was telling other people in the, in the earliest version of Scientology um, that, that he wanted to, to get the religious status uh, in order to make the entire operation a legal religion. He wrote, I await your reaction to the religion angle. In my opinion, we couldn't get worse public opinion than we have had or have less customers than what we've got to sell. A religious charter would be necessary in Pennsylvania or New Jersey to make it stick, but I sure could make it stick. He's not even hiding it, guys. The Scientology as a religion begins with him just openly saying, it's an angle. I can make what it stick. What
1: about the religion angle?
0: Yeah, I could do it. I await I, I, your reaction. This is the best that we can possibly it's, – it's, it's right there. It's so clear. I mean imagine if there was a letter from Jesus – Saying uh, if I can get everybody to believe in this shit, then we can make an awesome church for the next two thousand years, and that's how. If that letter existed, nobody should believe in this. It's it's right there, guys. We have the evidence. It's right there. Don't fall for this garbage. <sighs> okay, um, we're gonna we're gonna move forward a little bit here because yeah, we are we are much. still we're still just getting just getting into this suffice it to say and go out and learn about Elrond if you if you want to learn more about this transition there's basically this long uh, uh string of of scams and him kind of running from various entities he he teams up with a guy I think his name is Purnell uh Parcel I forget now god damn it there's too much in my head um and they they sort of the dianetics thing and then they yeah, end up hey, having a you falling out it is it's really out the window I, I'm probably going to. This is, this is why Scott was killing people. They couldn't remember anything after reading it. Um, they, they get the religion established, and they, uh, they, they decide that this is going to be the best way for them to hold on to their money. In 1958, though, the IRS pulled their tax-exempt religious status because Hubbard was taking all the money. It wasn't – you know the, the whole point of having the tax-exempt status is because the church is supposed to be doing public goods. That's, that's the notion behind it. So the IRS was like, yeah, but you're not. You're just taking it, and so right. we're not going to let you have tax exempt status. This ended up becoming like a core, core fight that plagued Scientology for a really long time. The 60s uh, were a time of turmoil for Scientology as one might expect, when a new and stubborn cult insists on an international presence and is built around charlatan ideas, extraordinary claims, and eyebrow-raising tactics, to say the least. It ended up being banned in Victoria, Western Australia, and Southern Australia. He was kicked out of Rhodesia and the United Kingdom. Investigations were launched in other countries, including Canada and South Africa. Um, At this point, the entire world is like, no, we're done with Dianetics You've turned this into a religion. You're fucking people over. We don't like what you're doing. And instead of, I, I don't know. He doesn't have an answer, so I don't know what his other choice was. I guess he could have quietly admitted it and gone away, but that's not Hubbard. Um, no. He instead introduces uh, uh, two concepts, disconnection and fair game. Um, Scott, what can you tell us about, about disconnecting in Scientology?
1: Um, well, the idea that a suppressive person should be disconnected and no – no, con- it kind of reminds me of shunning in Amish community where you just right. have no contact with that person anymore because they're labeled suppressive, and SP is a suppressive person, and you uh, – but it, it doesn't – it seems to be a permanent thing. Whereas like shunning, I, and I'm I'm not an army, so I don't know, but it seems that it lasts for a certain amount of time until they're forgiven or some kind of attrition is done. Uh, I don't know that you can work your bay, your way back into Scientology after being labeled an ST.
0: Right. This is this is uh, actually I've got um, I've got a document that I found. Um, this is something that's written by L. Ron Hubbard and he established during this time of, of, uh, I, I guess you could call it persecution in the, uh, in the 1960s, he established four levels of, of negative people. Um, you could label somebody a liability, treasonous, uh, a doubter or an enemy. Uh, and they have varying degrees of, of punishment, but an enemy is when you call somebody an SP, a suppressive person. And, An SP is considered fair game. This was a policy that L. Ron Hubbard implemented, uh, and the church later on um, said that they no longer engage in fair game, but people that have left the church in recent years insist that it is still very much active. Fair game in the original document uh, signed by L. Ron Hubbard states that somebody who's been declared fair game or as an SP may be deprived of property or injured by any means, by any Scientologist, without any discipline of the Scientologist. They may be tricked, sued, lied to, or destroyed.
1: Destroyed. A bit strong, isn't it?
0: A little – I mean, he's basically granting permission to pe- for people to go in, and injure people. He's, he's saying, uh, this person is fucking with us. We don't like that. Take them out. It's fine. I don't care. When you back that kind of an idea with religious fervor – has history ever demonstrated that good things occur okay um, now, as all of these all of these countries started getting mad at Scientology uh as is Hubbard's style, he started to say that um that that it was vicious, covert international attacks by the United States government. He started seeing all of these conspiracies. Um, All of the attacks were proven false and baseless, uh, which were at least 27 – they lasted for 27 years and finally culminated in the government being sued for $750 million for conspiracy. Behind the attacks, uh, stated Hubbard, lay a vast conspiracy of psychiatric front groups secretly controlling governments, every single lie. False charge and attack on Scientology has been traced directly to this group's members. They have sought at great expense for 19 years to crush and eradicate any new development in the field of the mind. They are actively preventing any effectiveness in the field.
1: Yeah, Hubbard believed that Scientology was being infiltrated by saboteurs and spies and introduced security checking to identify those he termed potential trouble sources and suppressive persons. Uh, Members of Church Scientology were interrogated with the aid of E-meters, which we talked about before. It was like a third of a lie detector test, so really um, reliable there. Hmm. And uh, they were asked questions uh, like, have you ever practiced homosexuality? Have you ever had unkind thoughts about L. Ron Hubbard? Um, And they would be interrogated about crimes committed in past lives. Like, have you ever destroyed a culture? Did you come to Earth for evil purposes? (laughs) <laughs> have you ever zapped anyone <laughs> have you
0: ever zapped anyone <laughs> that's so vague have you ever zapped anyone
1: uh, one time I was walking across a really shaggy carpet and then <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that yeah. I didn't mean to
0: did you come to earth to do that though to evilly zap people this yeah. is completely insane uh, okay um, Hubbard got, bought a few ships. He called it a fleet. He was, he was being kind of attacked from every direction, um, and he couldn't like hang out anywhere for long. But he had the Sea Org. This is, uh, this is a, a wing of Scientology, young volunteers who signed the uh, infamous billion-year contract. And agreed to basically be the kind of, sort of, almost military wing of Scientology. Their mission is to clear the planet and preserve, preserve the Earth, protect mankind from all of these terrible things that are out there to get us. Um, so he bought a few ships. He called it a fleet, staffed them with Sea Org members. He declared himself a Commodore and embarked on a long journey, mostly in the Mediterranean, uh, where he was managing aspects of the religion remotely. Uh, he was writing lots of new texts in, like, this feverish way. Um, he was apparently also searching for hidden treasures that he thought he had buried along the Mediterranean coast in past lives we We, we go into this period shortly after after his, his he was, he was out there for like eight years, trying to land here and there. You can read all about it, various ports where he would pull up and the people would riot. He would try to ingratiate himself with with local leaders. Um, he got involved with the secret police of some some country in South America helping them to root out. Basically, uh, like, infor- like, bad, bad people in their, in like, basically his version of suppressive forces. But, you know, the police thought that there were, like, renegades and stuff in their country. So he was, like, so he finally- teaming up with them. He was teaching them his methods. And then it caused an, an, an internal, like, conflict in the country. So he had to run from that. Finally, he decides, screw this. Um, I'm going to go back home. Um, He he returns to the United States and then spends the next little while just in hiding, just immersed in deep paranoia. There are strange threats coming in from every direction.
1: Hiding from the tax man, hiding from suppressive people who want to zap him.
0: (laughs) Hiding from psychiatrists. He thought there was an international Nazi conspiracy uh, trying to kill Scientology. Um, every government was somehow involved. I mean, he went completely nuts. Um, he had done a lot of drugs in his life. He was a chain smoker. Uh, he was, he was, he apparently had a growth on his head. He was in very bad health. Uh, he wrecked a motorcycle in the late seventies and that, that injured him pretty bad, but he ended up bouncing from safe house to safe house all across the United States um, always trying to stay one step ahead of actual people trying to get him, like they were trying to extradite him to France, for, to France for a while. But he was also imagining tons of other threats, and and it was all part of this massive global conspiracy from like the American psychiatric academy. Like everything was 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 just like everything else in his life, a blend of of falsehood and truth that turned into. Um, him being constantly and in every way persecuted from every angle. He finally landed in um, somewhere near La Quinta, California. And this is where David Miscavige enters the picture.
1: Oh, goody, goody. Here we go.
0: David Miscavige. I am just a little bit obsessed with David Miscavige. He is – He is. I, 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 if he was an actor, he could play the Antichrist. This guy oh, yeah. exudes evil. He is so – if he wasn't so bad, he would be kind of awesome.
1: Um, oh, yeah. He's totally driven. Yeah. Uh, he joined um, Scientology like right after his 16th birthday, told his parents he didn't want to attend school anymore and within a few months of joining, he was working for L. Ron Hubbard personally, helping him with movie productions as a cameraman in La Quinta. Um, Miscavige was ambitious, uh, an ambitious individual who exuded confidence and charisma.
0: Hubbard liked this kid. Um, they got on quite well. Um, Hubbard was uh, uh, Miscavige was very, very good at telling Hubbard exactly what he wanted to hear. He understood exactly how to Uh, Play on Hubbard's paranoia, but also calm him down in order to say, yeah, you're right. They are out to get you, but I can fix it. Um, Hubbard appointed him to the Commodore's messenger organization, the CMO, uh, which is responsible for enforcing Hubbard's policies within the individual Scientology organizations. Um, He became the head of the CMO in 1979. He's still fairly young, um, but he got himself rooted in deep and quick and immediately figured out how to play Hubbard. At this point, Hubbard wasn't just imagining Nazis and international organizations powered by psychiatrists that wanted to kill the work of Dianetics. He was also seeing all of these suppressive people rising in the ranks underneath him, trouble without and trouble within. Anybody who was causing any kind of problem inside of the organization, anybody in the religion who failed or uh, he didn't think was working hard enough, anybody that he damn well pleased essentially. Could be, could be declared fair game and could be uh, labeled as a suppressive uh, force. Hubbard under, uh, Miscavige understood that this was um, what Hubbard was doing, and he understood that with Hubbard kind of going insane, that he could be the voice in his ear of, you're right, you're right, Elrond, give me more power, and I will take care of it for you. Right, and he worked through the ranks, yeah. but I've got it for you. Don't even worry about it. He effectively reorganized... Happen much of Scientology, and used ethics hearings to purge some top members. He gained control of distribution rights over uh, Hubbard's uh, works.
1: When uh, Hubbard died in 1986, Miscavige announced the death of Scientologists at the Hollywood Palladium. Shortly before Hubbard's death, an apparent order from him circulated in the Sea Org that promoted Scientologist Pat Broker and his wife to the new rank of Royal Officer, making them the highest-ranking members. Miscavige asserted this order had been forged. After Hubbard's death, Miscavige assumed the position of head of Scientology organization. Miscavige holds rank of captain and is the highest ranking member of the C Org. His official title is chairman of the board of the Religious Technolo- uh, Technology Center.
0: Over over the, the, the preceding decades, Miscavige took care of all of Scientology's woes. It was in serious, serious trouble. It owed a lot of money. It was under intense scrutiny for legal purposes. There was a lot of problems with Scientology. He ended up figuring out how to launch like 2,600 or something lawsuits against the IRS. Um, he sued the federal government a bunch of times. He engaged in a bunch of probably illegal practices that are talked about um, at length on the Internet, all in order to apply enough pressure on the IRS to restore Scientology's um, uh, religious, the, the, the tax-exempt status that, that religions get. The IRS wasn't going to give it to them, and Scientology owed like a billion dollars in debt to the IRS because they had not right. been paying their taxes for decades. Um, they, they didn't have that kind of money on hand. And so they were facing utter bankruptcy, but Miscavige got all of his people together and through strict internal discipline, got them all to use the law for their own purposes in order to pressure the IRS. And eventually he won and ended up saving Scientology from that by getting the tax exempt status back, saving like over a billion dollars from the American taxpayer. Um, we should probably mention his wife. Right? You want to you wanna tell us a little bit about Michelle Miscavige?
1: Uh, well, uh, yeah. Shelley Miscavige um, has not been seen in public for almost 10 years since August of 2007. And um, former Scientologist Leah Remini uh, actually filed a missing persons um, complaint with the police department because she uh, was – while she was still in Scientology – when she went to Tom Cruise's wedding, um, she saw David Miscavige there with his assistant, not his wife. And he, she asked like, why isn't uh, Shelly here? Why, why isn't she here? And she was told that she wasn't, she didn't have a high enough rank to ask that question about the leader. And so, you know, she, I guess was shut up that night and was quiet. But then, um, you know, after she, decides to leave the, the church and the organization, she follows his, files this missing person report and um, goes with an officer to the church. He goes in to look for, you know, the wife comes out and says that she's there. Leah asks, um, did you see her physically or were you just told and he doesn't like answer that or he answers it vaguely? But then she later claims that she's seen this police officer, photographs of this police officer at a Scientology event and um, for human trafficking so that he, he was there either he's a Scientologist or he's in with them speaking for them at events but there seems to be a little funkiness going on there now I, I'm certainly not saying that David Miscavige you know has brutally murdered his wife or anything I'm not no
0: no, no no you wouldn't you wouldn't make that kind of claim
1: no she's probably just you know hiding out of the limelight for a little while
0: yeah, she just needs a little ten-year break.
1: Just a little, little space.
0: A little, um, but need some space.
1: When they get this power, when Miscavige gets this um, tax exemption status, he kind of—it seems like to me—like he, he gets this newfound. Like he was already ambitious and driven and, and confident and charismatic, but it seems like he got this. I got that under my belt. I won. I'm, I'm more powerful than I used to be, and he takes that to to just. Uh, go all out. So that whole model that, you know, he was in the ear of Hubbard saying, you're right, they are after you, and I will, I, I got your back, I got this. He took that on for himself and started seeing detractors and enemies in people around him. And so um, at their, um, what's the place that they have? Uh, the, is it the Gold Center? The, gold, the
0: gold Base. Yeah, the Gold the Base. Gold base. With me.
1: Right. They have this uh, couple of double-wide trailers put together. They call it the Hole. And they send people there that are in the church, active Scientologists, but that he is determined, suppressive, or out to get him, or, or have disobeyed some kind of command or rule or something or other, and put him in there in these horrible conditions. There's no beds or anything; they sleep on sleeping bags on the floor. And he he's been um, former members have said that, you know, like Mar- Marty Rathburn has said that, like David Miscavige would come into that hole and abuse people and make them play sick and twisted games to see who gets to stay, who gets to stay mm. gets in this horrible environment. Up. They're so brainwashed that they, they won't fight back to this guy. They just will do whatever they can to stay being punished by him because they believe that they probably are suppressive or they believe at least that they'll be punished for the thought crimes that they're committing.
0: L. Ron Hubbard was, um, was abusive in a, in a lot of cases, but David Miscavige repackaged... Abuse in the church. Um, he reinvented with uh, with some other members of the church that that most of which have have left now. Uh, Mike Render and uh, uh, Marty Rathbun. These are these are these are household names at this point. You can you can watch their interviews in Going Clear, the documentary from HBO. Uh, I think that uh, at least Mike Render appears in the Leah Remini series on A and E. Um, there are some uh, some other resources. There's a there's a movie called My Scientology movie where. Um, regardless of anything else in the film, you get to, you get to learn a little bit about uh, Marty Rathbun. He's in there quite a bit. These were people who were subject to disconnection from their families, who were very afraid of this happening, but ultimately left the church anyway. These are people that talk again and again about how they were uh, attacked and beaten by uh, David Miscavige again and again, the, the conditions in the whole people that were locked in these double-wides for years, years at a time. Behind double sided barbed wire under constant floodlights, security cameras and every different
1: this yeah, is the, absolutely
0: a lockdown cult
1: yeah it's the Xenu model uh, remember in the first episode we talked about there was um, buoys like near the Oort cloud or whatever outside of our solar system that would alert Xenu to anybody who tried to leave this this system and the buoys would go off and alert Zenu, and he would come back in six weeks and then destroy us again well at, mm-hmm. at this at this facility, Around the barbed wire fence that you just talked about, around the oval outside, they have these things attached to the fence called fence rattlers that make a large amount of noise and set off uh, alarm systems and turn on lights so that Miscavige and the higher-ups in that uh, facility can tell if anyone's trying to get out so they can go after him. The totally Xenu model scaled down to their purposes.
0: Yeah, they're, they're, Zenu is supposed to be the big bad guy, and yet they're basically borrowing from his playbook on how to handle right. it. The people that are supposed to be their church members, that the, like their allies.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. You know, all this stuff that we've talked. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just saying. All the stuff that we've talked about makes you start wondering. Like, you can tell that this is made up by a science fiction writer, but he was kind of crazy. That you have this maniacal man in charge now who who abuses people, and you're you're wondering for all the world, like, how would anybody be compelled to join such an organization? It's, it's what is it. it becomes
0: it becomes difficult to understand we're gonna we're gonna jump in to to exploring that topic through the lens of because this is what everybody knows about scientology and we we promised everybody last week that we would talk about uh we would talk about the biggest actor in the world. So for about, for about the next four and a half minutes we're going to jump in and give you guys some, uh, some, uh, some, some some Tom Cruise content. What we want to invite you guys to do is follow ism podcast underscore on Periscope after this broadcast we 're going to shut down for about ten minutes and then we 're going to start an after show because there is so much more that we haven't been able to cover even in a double episode we 're going to do another broadcast on periscope we 're going to do an after show so everybody can come in ask questions, and we will go over all of the other celebrities but for the time being, Scott, tell us something about Tom Cruise.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I was saying, like, how, how would you be compelled to join this organization? But you, you put out there, the way they put Tom Cruise out there and the way, the way he's, like, handsome and successful in his acting. And you're like, oh, he believes in this crazy religion. And you kind of see that sometimes when he's jumping on a couch in love. But you could, well, maybe that's love. Or when he's being a little starry-eyed, you know, uh, talking about Scientology. But when you look at um, this organization that, you know, you don't know maybe all of this abusive stuff, all of this history, and you see that it's like, well, it's it's off, It's at least trying to offer solutions to problems. And then when you kind of mix that with confirmation bias and a well-oiled marketing machine, you get this doctrine that, that people will fall for. Um, so Tom Cruise, uh, things that are out there about Tom Cruise that make it look like maybe Scientology works. Maybe at, at least the psychological stuff that it's built on might have a positive effect on people. So um, back in 1996, Tom Cruise stopped while driving in Santa Monica, California after witnessing a hit and run of a uh, Josea Banas, a 23-year-old Brazilian actress. Uh, she got knocked down by an unknown driver. Cruise followed the amb- called an ambulance for her, followed the ambulance to UCLA Medical Center, made sure she was OK. She had a broken leg and bruised ribs. He discovered that she had no insurance, so he paid her $7,000 bill. Um, at, the British, at the British premiere of the first Mission Impossible movie, Crew spotted two young boys getting crushed against barricades by the crowd. He went and uh, lifted up Lawrence Sadler and Christos Tanzis, 7 and 13 years old. Uh, he lifted them to safety, took them to their parents. One of the boy's mother said, we're very grateful to Tom. Um, He chased off some muggers, uh, that were mugging his neighbor in Los Angeles. He, he heard the commotion outside of his house, ran out of his house with his bodyguards, chased off the, the muggers. The, uh, the 47 year old woman said she, she is grateful for him to being there, uh, when, you know, the, the police didn't catch the guys, but she was okay. Lost a little bit of jewelry. Um, while he was sailing in the Mediterranean off the Island of Capri, uh, him and his wife at the time, Nicole Kidman, spotted a sailboat on fire and he sent over his skip with his yacht staff to, to get the five passengers off of the boat before it sank. So you're thinking, look at all these things that he's doing and is that because of Scientology, is that the confidence that Scientology gives him? Maybe I want to join that organization.
0: He's a great spokesman. You know, that those are those are everybody wants to kind of be like a celebrity anyway, I think. At least a lot of people do. Um, and when you see somebody awesome like that who 's doing cool stuff in real life, not just on the screen yeah you're right there 's this trend of him uh jumping jumping in the you know to to help people when you know he he really doesn't have to and it's uh it 's a pretty remarkable trend
1: um but then there 's also like when David Miscavige in a church' is rumored to have uh got him a girlfriend hold auditions women young actresses think they 're auditioning for the next Mission Impossible movie, but really they're auditioning to be Tom Cruise's girlfriend. And uh, mm-hmm. one of the girls, I can't remember her name, was dating Tom for a couple months after this was arranged. And she's living at the house, and David Miscavige comes over to talk to Tom, and she had a headache, she wasn't feeling good, and so she kind of excused herself. Later, when Miscavige left, Tom freaks out on her, bangs a table, yells, you're being rude to the leader of the church, what is wrong with you? And just, like, scares her and freaks her out so she leaves. So, you know, maybe not all good
0: certainly not all good no this this is you know somebody who um is doing a lot for the church and has helped a few individuals um but he's he's also profiting off of damn near slave labor um right. this is this is documented in several places and uh, people that have left the church say that there's no way he doesn't know what's going on, what it's costing the sea Org and other volunteers who are working sometimes 30 hours at a time with no sleep, who are kept in strict strict discipline, who aren't getting paid and are working to renovate his hangar or you know redecorate the inside of his house. They're 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 treating people like property in order to keep Tom Cruise uh, very very happy. And he and Miscavige are apparently very very close friends and have been since near the beginning of Tom Cruise's. Um, acting career. Um, Scott, you had you had a little thing written about um, about Scientology that we were gonna that we were gonna kind of start to say in closing here, and we need to do that because we are running out of time.
1: Yeah, um, Scientology maintains its grip on its aging American congregation by threatening and often following through with tearing families apart. It applies psychological pressure in cruel ways to threaten and intimidate people, both in the church and after they leave. It launches smear campaigns on anyone who would dare apostatize, no matter how untrue their claims may be. They reject the normal bonds of family through the Thetan narrative, yet rely on emotional connections between loved ones to manipulate followers. As an organization, Scientology is emotionally violent, physically abusive, and chronically fraudulent.
0: We, 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 could, we could do an entire another episode on this, guys, but I think that, two is probably sufficient. Tune in for the after show on Periscope, and we're going to cover some more material there, and it's going to be very, very cool to get to engage with you guys on that platform. Um, in closing, I wanted to say Scientology has perfected one of the core strengths of all religions, the selling of an invisible product. They sell physical products, too. Uh, Dianetics dominated the bestseller list following its initial publication. Uh, Between late 1985 and 1990, at least 20 books by Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard became bestsellers. There is some contention about whether or not that was from the public or whether or not that was the church purchasing copies of their own publications. In March of 1988, nearly four decades after its initial publication, Hubbard's Dianetics, The Modern Science of Mental Health, was number one on virtually every bestseller list in the country, including the New York. But the true product of Scientology, the one that gets people to pay with more than currency, is humanity's old nemesis, Faith. By following the levels of Scientology, you can become clear, gain superpowers, and transcend your corporeal form in order to carry on living. What is at stake is nothing less than the future of the universe itself. Pretty powerful stuff. Of course, along the way, you will be required to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to the church, and you may even be encouraged to sign a billion year contract to fight against fictional entities on behalf of mankind. Scientology doesn't have a clear mission. They are not, to my knowledge, building a fleet of intergalactic warships to fight the enemies of humanity. They aren't trying to build a defense net for the planet that can preserve our species against the imminent return of Xenu. Instead, They seem to be trying to make individuals more joyful through slavish adoption of a system of control that saps both their wallet and their critical thinking faculties. These people are then dispatched to recruit more people who might pay a small fortune to relieve their bodies of thetans or rediscover engrams from previous lives. The theology encourages a fierce distrust of medicine and a negative zealous attitude towards homosexuality and specific types of criminal behavior. It promotes groupthink and self-subjugation to an intentionally confusing narrative enforced by brutish attitudes that encourage bullying and submission to narcissistic leaders. Lots of promises, extraordinary claims, and suspicion towards the fields of academia that have the ability to expose the falsities. Sound familiar? Scientology is ridiculous, and most attitudes towards it label it as such. And, of course, this is true. Scientology is ridiculous. But is it really more ridiculous than a Middle Eastern warlord splitting the moon in half on a horse with the face of a human? A man who could walk on water, raise the dead, and at will command water to turn into wine? A vengeful deity watching everything we do so he can torture the people who don't believe in him properly for eternity? No. I don't think this is really any more ridiculous than the talking donkey or the magic reading stones or the burning bush. It's just newer. It doesn't have the benefit of thousands of years of reinforcement. All religions are too ridiculous to take seriously or literally. Scientology just doesn't have the inertia of the classic monotheisms. It's American Religion 2.0, the reformed business model of faith for the post-industrial age. It's a goofy little religion, but imagine if it was big. Imagine instead of Christianity, more than two-thirds of Americans believed in the revelations of L. Ron Hubbard. How far could the abuse tactics go if it had common public support and more than 25,000 members? People say Scientology helps a lot of people with addiction, illiteracy, and criminal behavior. This is true. There are plenty of people who believe that the efforts of the church got them clean or convinced them not to take drugs in the first place. Many religions are committed in part to humanitarian purposes while committing a a plethora of travesties at the same time. The Catholic Church helps feed the poor. It also abuses people around the globe through sexuality and poverty. Hamas does a lot of work to provide for the needy in Palestine. It also engages in horrendous human rights abuses. Helping the hopeless is somewhat diminished when calculated against the misery caused by the same organization. And what about the true motivation? Does religious charity exist simply because religions are good? Or is the motivation much more often to introduce people to the church? If Scientology wants to help people, could it do so without blending their message into the aid? One doubts it. Scientology is out to gain followers, like any religion. They value their tax-exempt status above almost anything. And to keep it, it, churches have to demonstrate that they are providing a public good. That's supposed to be part of the reason the government doesn't tax religious organizations in the first place. Follow the money. Scientology justifies its tax-exempt status by building outreach centers and churches all over the world in order to help the planet. Or to say the exact same sentence another way, Scientology justifies its tax-exempt status by diversifying its money in high-value real estate and buying a perfect propaganda arm in the process. We can help people without lying to them, and we can help them without turning them into blindly obedient prisoners, afraid, indeed forbidden, to learn or question or think. Scientology, even more so than most religions, encourages a constant us-first-them mentality. It can rob the human essence of its drive to connect with others by labeling anyone who doesn't subscribe to the exact same theology as lost or misguided or even evil. Protestants fret about Catholics and secularists. Muslims fret about infidels and Jews. Scientologists fret about suppressives and psychiatrists. By the way, they all absolutely despise apostates relative to themselves, and none have a very good history with sexuality, the treatment of homosexuals, or equality for women. How do you form a real human connection with someone who your church labels as negative? If you believe anyone who doesn't think just like you and your church are lost at best and actively trying to harm the universe at worst, there is not a lot of room left for genuine friendship or a free exchange of ideas, let alone the opportunity to soundboard doctrine with an objective mind. What a terrible thing to do to a human being. How evil and greedy one must be to want to dissuade normal empathy, foster strict sectarian distrust, and break people by making them choose between their families and their faith. Finally, the benefit of a religion in an individual's life states nothing about the truth of that religion's claims. If people feel better, more in control, and clearer in mind after the the cathartic experience of a confession-like audit, does this mean there really is a galactic overlord in command of a fleet? On ancient war airplanes living in a different part of the galaxy just waning to come and use H-bombs to blow us all away again? If someone gains confidence from a session or a book or a prayer or the words of a leader, and that confidence helps them achieve success in life, is that evidence for a supernatural claim made in a series of science fiction novels that detail a four-quadrillion-year-old universe? Of course not. Justifying this kind of delusional belief because of its personal benefits is just as misguided as believing the earth is 6,000 years old because one thinks Jesus ended their alcoholism. We know things about our planet and about our universe. Beware any system of thought that makes extraordinary and contradictory claims while casting endless doubt on science and academia. If you have to distrust science in order to follow a religion, that should be a major clue that the religion can't stand up to the scrutinies of empirical testing and critical thought. Reject this cult, but don't pretend that it makes less sense than any other. These narratives require you to stop thinking, to accept the bizarre and the controversial on faith, to surrender your personal sovereignty in the name of what is, plainly, nothing more than an interesting lie. Every aspect of Scientology is overpriced, unimpressive, and grossly exaggerated. This is a trap, and it's very good at being one. We would do well to make note of how it works and why people are willing to hand over vast amounts of money and their very freedom in order to feel like they are part of the club that has all the answers. Pacity for faith makes you a potential sucker. There will always be another theology ready to seize on your fears and leverage your desires against you. There is, however, a defense. Never stop thinking. I want to thank everybody for listening tonight. This has been the most fun I have had on the show. I'd also like to direct everyone to my recent blog post about my journey with ISM through January. It's available for free on patreon.com informedpodcast. Before we go for the evening, I have a very exciting announcement that many of you have probably guessed over the last two hours. In fact, it's not I that has an announcement, but us. My good friend Scott has agreed, at his peril, to join ISM as my permanent co-host. Guys, I could not be more excited about this. The last two weeks have been full of sleep-deprived nights and giddy calls between us as we discovered more and more bizarre things about Scientology. We've worked very hard, but it never felt like work. Instead, we were just enthralled with the journey of discovery and the shared sense of awe and humor as we continued peeling layers off of this batty onion. Scott and I collaborated once before on episode 10 of ISM on simulation hypothesis, and we knew we had a certain chemistry then. You can find that... And all of our previous episodes on Blog Talk Radio slash Informed Podcast on iTunes, as well as on iTunes, I should say. We have also been working hard at reforming ISM into something shared, and we have some brilliant ideas lined up for future episodes, starting with a very special free bonus episode this Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern. This will serve as Scott's official introduction as permanent co-host, and we'll give you all a taste of his style. The episode won't go as long as usual, and Patreons will not be charged. It's just our way of celebrating the new ISM. Scott has been a friend of mine for a while now. He is a brother in humanism and a master of counter-apologetics. He has been my sparring partner, my comrade, and my fellow traveler along the ill-lit paths of wisdom and skepticism. I believe that together we are going to continue giving you one hell of a show. Onwards and upwards. Guys, tune in for the after show. That will be starting in just a few minutes. You can follow us on uh, Periscope to get that broadcast.